Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Friday, September 10th. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mayor Nahad Nenshi. We get the mayor's thoughts on the impact the fourth wave of the pandemic is having on the city of Calgary and his personal thoughts on the tragic events of 9-11, which took place 20 years ago this weekend. Next, on the topic of the anniversary of 9-11, we head stateside for a look at how this ominous anniversary is being observed in the U.S. We get details from Jackson Prosco, Washington Bureau Chief for Global News. Last night marked the final leaders debate of the federal election. We get a recap of the night, including any clear winners or losers from Mike LeCouture, Global News National Ottawa correspondent. And finally, it's been said that today's deficits are tomorrow's taxes. When we speak with Jake Fuss, who's the senior economist from the Fraser Institute, about how Canada's rising debt levels will affect future generations. It's been an eventful week in Calgary, from new mask mandates to mandatory vaccines for city workers. We're back with our weekly chat with Mayor Nahad Nenshi for the details on everything happening in YYC. Good morning to you, Mr. Mayor. Good morning, friends. Well, before we get to to the eventful uh, past seven days here in the city, let's talk about 20 years ago. We're asking people on the text line their thoughts and their opinions on where they were and uh, just generally looking back 20 years to 9-11. Where were you that fateful morning? Well, I had just moved back to Calgary uh, after many years away, about three weeks earlier. And I uh, had spent a ton of my professional life in New York and in Washington, D.C., and in Boston, of course, which is where one of the planes originated from. And so, you know, I got it was early-ish for me because I was unemployed, and mm-hmm. I got a phone call uh, from an uncle in Toronto saying, turn on your TV now. And so, of course, I spent the morning uh, watching, but also trying to reach my friends who lived and worked in lower Manhattan. You know, most people didn't have cell phones then. And uh, making sure that people were safe. Uh, My close friend, who was right across the street, uh, they just evacuated, and she got on the first train going anywhere and ended up uh, staying at a friend's house on Long Island for several days before she could get back uh, to her place in Manhattan. But here's the interesting Calgary twist on all of it. That day I was planning on going to my very first public hearing of Calgary City Council because they were looking at selling NMAX. And that was the day of the public hearing. And when I had arrived back in Calgary a few weeks earlier, I had said I want to be more engaged in the local community. And I read in the newspaper that the city was thinking of selling NMAX. And I I saw the numbers in the press and I went, that doesn't make sense. That is worth way more. The city is going to sell it for a third of what it's worth. So I ran a little financial model, checked it with some friends who know more about that sort of thing than I do, found out that, yeah, I was right. And I had submitted a paper to city council on the sale of NMAX, and I was going to show up at this public hearing. Now, back then, they didn't have webcasts or anything, and I didn't even know if the public hearing was going on, but I couldn't bear to watch TV anymore. So at lunchtime, I took the C train downtown, and when I got to City Hall, there were people on the steps of City Hall handing out a special edition of the Calgary Herald for the first time in 100 years. Mm -hmm. And I went in and spent the afternoon in a public hearing at Calgary City Council, my first ever, and now I've had thousands of them. Wow. That's an amazing story. Fantastic. Can I ask you, and maybe you can't say, but you know, when, when the city of Calgary is looking at their emergency preparedness plans, et cetera, does 9-11 come up in that? 
Uh, not specifically 9-11, but the really good news is, and I think we're we're a bit spoiled in Calgary because the Calgary Emergency Management Agency is really quite unique. And the Emergency Operations Center, you know, I since the flood, I've had the opportunity to tour Emergency Operations Center, including the Prime Minister's Emergency Operations Center in Britain. And in fact, we have better facilities than they do. And so... The fact that uh, we've been investing in FEMA for so many years to be ready for anything is something that's pretty unique among municipal governments, and I'm, I'm very proud of the work they do. All right, let's uh, switch gears and talk about this past seven days. The mask mandate, which the city was uh, ready to pull the trigger on, and obviously we had the province uh, uh, doing the same across the province. Uh, but as far as the uh, city uh, uh, city workers, the vaccine mandate. So how yes. was reaction, and how do you feel that went over? vast, vast majority of reaction from city employees has been, thank you, Lord. They've been so positive because they want to be safe at work. Uh, and about two-thirds of our city staff, our colleagues, cannot work remotely. You know, they, they have jobs like bus driver or firefighter, which doesn't allow them to work remotely. And so the vast majority of feedback we've had from city employees has been really positive. I would say greater than 10 to 1. There are a, some employees who are concerned, and we are still working out some of the details around what if you have a medical exemption, um, what if you have a protected grounds exemption like a religious exemption, what if you do have a job that's 100% remote, will we look at the rules differently for you? So we're working through all of that now, um, but what is clear, and so nobody's getting fired tomorrow. There was a rumor saying if you don't have your first dose by mm-hmm. September 13th, you'll be automatically fired. That's not going to happen. But if you're really belligerent about it and you don't have a good reason, then there will be discipline. And, uh, you know, that could include, for example, going on leave without pay. Um, And so we will continue to work with uh, our labor organizations as well as with other large employers, as many large employers across the country are putting in the same mandate, a new one every day, uh, to make sure that we're treating people fairly, but ultimately We are entirely focused on the safety of the 15,000 colleagues who come to work every day and on the citizens that they interact with every day. Mayor, more on the mask mandate and rising case numbers, if you can hang on for a couple of minutes with us. Sure. Perfect. We'll be right back with Mayor Nahed Nenshi. More with Mayor Nahed Nenshi. Thank you for sticking around with us, Mr. Mayor. Happy to be here. Wanted to talk uh, just a couple of things. Uh, if we can, if you can touch a little bit on enforcement, because it was important for the city's involvement, not just the province, when it comes to those mask mandates, because of the enforcement piece. So, if you can touch on that for us and, and, and tell us what more can be done, Mr. Mayor, because the numbers are, are not impressive. Yeah, very briefly, um, the province. Uh, I've been trying to be gracious through all of this. But the amount of small mistakes that they're making is pretty stunning. And one of them is they put this mask mandate in uh, 11.30 in the morning on a Friday before a long weekend, taking effect the next morning. And maybe they forgot that they had lifted the ability for Calgary peace officers to enforce provincial health orders for completely obscure reasons earlier in the summer when they removed everything, which is why we needed a city bylaw as well. Um, because that gives our transit officers and our peace officers the ability to enforce uh, the mask mandate, which we will continue to do. Though, to be fair, enforcement hasn't really been a problem. When the mandate comes in, the vast, vast majority of people are Mm -hmm. compliant um, and are doing it. But it was just yet another thing where it really feels like 
the government of Alberta is making things up as they go along. Uh, the other example, of course, is the random liquor sales curfew at 10 p.m. really whacking the bar and restaurant sector yet again um, uh, just before a long weekend, Calgary Pride, which is one of the busiest weekends of the year for many restaurants and bars, no warning. They gave Calgary Pride-related activities an exemption from the 10 p.m. curfew at 10.30 p.m. on Saturday after it had already gone in place and artists had lost their gigs. And, I mean, it, the whole thing is ridiculous. It looks like they looked at a menu and went, maybe people will complain the least about these things, uh, not looking at the actual evidence. So we're in a position now where maybe this could have been avoided, but it can't be avoided anymore, and the province is going to have to swallow hard and put in a vaccine passport. It really is the only thing they've got left if we want to avoid further business closures. There's been so much that just doesn't seem to make sense. Are you hearing from business owners and Calgarians as a whole that really want the, the, I hate the term because it gets people all riled up, but a vaccine passport of some sort, paperwork, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I hate that term too, but you know what? Yeah, I'm hearing it from people who want to travel because, you know, Minister Shandro said, just take a screenshot of your e-health app. Yeah, the screenshot of the page that shows your health, uh, your your vaccination status, doesn't include your name. <laughs> so I got a screenshot that has, you know, two doses of Pfizer if anybody wants it, 50 bucks. <laughs> Kidding, of course. Um, but in reality, they were just so unprepared. And yeah, I'm hearing from citizens, you know, a recent uh, two recent polls showed over 75% support for proof of vaccination requirements. So people feel like they're comfortable going to a restaurant that the people at the next table aren't going to make them sick. Uh, And, yeah, we're hearing from a lot of businesses. The biggest concern from business is how do we have a consistent one and how do we make the pressure on our staff, you know, who are often young people working in their first jobs, as easy as possible. And the easiest way to do that is for a provincial mandate and a provincial system. Almost every other province has done it. It's not hard. For once, swallow your pride and just use the BC solution or use the Ontario solution, and we can have this thing done by next week. But it requires political will from the government of Alberta. And I'll remind everybody that our numbers are really terrible. 18 people lost in one day. By far the highest rates in all of Canada, not just per capita, but we have far more rates than Ontario that has many times our population. This is an absolute failure of the system throughout, uh, asleep at the switch in August, and people have a right to be mad about it. Mr. Mayor, thanks for your time this morning, and have a good weekend. Thank you all. Good, safe weekend, everyone. That is Mayor Nahed Nenshi. Where were you when the world stopped turning on that September day? Were you in the yard with your wife and children? 7.09 now. I think everybody remembers where they were on this, well, tomorrow, on this anniversary of 9-11, 20 years later. With the latest on that and all the events happening south of the border, we are joined this morning by Jackson Prosco, Global News Washington Bureau Chief. Hi, Jackson. 
Good morning. Where were you on September 11th that year, uh, I was 20 still years in Calgary. ago? Were yeah, you? I was still in Calgary back then uh, in my uh, second year of university. And I uh, certainly remember waking up and watching it on uh, TV and phoning my dad and saying, turn on the TV. And he said, what channel? And I said, it doesn't matter. We'd mm. actually, uh, he and I had just been in New York two weeks prior to that and had dinner on top of the World Trade Center just two weeks before that. Wow. Incredible. It, you know, flash forward, it's hard to wrap your head around the fact that it has been, in fact, two decades. So uh, we're wondering from our standpoint uh, uh, here in Calgary, obviously we're not forgetting about it. What's being done to observe the uh, ominous date uh, down south? Yeah, there are uh, commemorations and memorials taking place uh, at the, the major sites, of course, the Pentagon, the former World Trade Center site, and in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. We know that President Joe Biden is planning to travel to all three sites uh, over the course of the day tomorrow. Uh, and former President George W. Bush will be at the commemoration in Shanksville. And of course, uh, many people are reflecting and commemorating this in their own ways, uh, reflecting on how much time has gone by and, and how much the world has changed. I think that's the thing, isn't it, Jackson? I mean, the world literally changed with something that happened in the United States. How do Americans feel about this 20 years later, especially when we see what's happening in Afghanistan, all the allies in the United States Army pulling out? Are there fears that we could see something like this again? Yeah, you know, all week long, actually, I've been talking to uh, veterans of the Afghanistan war, American veterans, uh, to find out their thoughts, because for many of them, uh, 9-11 was already a difficult date on the calendar every year as it came up. But this year, it has been the culmination, really, of a month of anguish and grief and feelings of betrayal since the collapse of Afghanistan. And the sort of common thread I'm hearing from them is, uh, you know, grappling with these feelings of, was it worth it? Did we sacrifice all this for nothing, coupled with fears? about what happens in the future and whether Afghanistan will once again become a breeding ground for terrorism. Uh, one veteran I spoke to who uh, served in 2002 and 2004 said, you know, it's his, his fear that something bad is going to come out of that country again in the next seven to ten years. And he said what brings him comfort is knowing the amazing job that American and allied troops did for 20 years, that there was not another September 11th in the time that they were in that country. Well, and you look at the vigilance, you know, against anti-terrorism measures, not just across the globe, but in uh, in North America. And I'm wondering, you know, uh, what uh, protocols are in place to prevent something. I mean, it was unimaginable 20 years ago, but uh, another unimaginable happening on American soil. Do you think that, you know, uh, the, the uh, government is up to snuff at this point? Yeah, I mean, you think of how much sort of uh, things have changed around security and intelligence and, and terrorism. Uh, the fact that, of course, the Patriot Act was passed that allows warrantless wireless uh, wiretapping and, and surveillance of uh, everyday Americans uh, and, and how effective, uh, despite the fact that, of course, it is incredibly controversial, how effective those measures have been at, uh, you know, sort of preventing other well-coordinated large-scale attacks. Uh, you look at the fact that things like the TSA, which, of course, does airport screening, that didn't exist, of course, uh, pre-9-11. And so really, I think uh, the U.S. has a, a sort of broader mechanism in place to respond to it and, and hopefully prevent uh, these types of attacks. Well, we'll certainly be thinking about uh, our friends tomorrow on this, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Um, let's change tactics a little bit and talk about uh, COVID because it's, it's still rearing its ugly head uh, both here in Canada and, of course, in the U.S. 25% of all new cases I read yesterday in the U.S. are children. Yeah, you have to keep in mind that in a lot of the U.S., classes go back in August. They've been back in for several weeks now in many parts of the country. Other places are just going back after Labor Day here. But the experience in places like Texas has not been good. Uh, you're right. A quarter million children already uh, have 
contracted the virus here in the first few weeks back. Uh, 55,000 children have been hospitalized with COVID. That is the highest rate of hospitalizations amongst children at any point in the pandemic. And I think what stands out to me is what's happened in Miami, where in one school district, 13 teachers and school staff have died from the virus in the last month. Incredible. And, and you look at the numbers of vaccinations. I wonder if you can a, uh, give us the most recent, because I knew it was dancing around a 50% mark for fully vaccinated Americans. Maybe it's more than that now. But what is being done to encourage Americans to get the jab? Because it seems to me that would be the only way out. Yeah, we're a little over 50% of uh, all eligible Americans, closer to uh, over 70% of eligible adults. Yesterday, President Joe Biden announced some pretty strict measures that uh, will essentially compel uh, about 100 million Americans to be vaccinated. The the number he sort of focused on is the 80 million who haven't yet received their vaccine. Uh, Using his powers, he assigned an executive order that uh, requires all federal government employees to be vaccinated. There's no option for testing if you don't want to be vaccinated. You have to get the vaccine to keep your job. And they're going to require that all large employers, that's companies with more than 100 employees, uh, will either have to mandate vaccination for their employees or mandate weekly testing. So that's where they're headed with all of this. Now, there are critics who say this actually doesn't go far enough. There are critics that say it goes way too far. But at the end of the day, the majority of adult Americans of voting age are vaccinated. And that includes a majority of Republicans who have historically been more hesitant on, mm-hmm. on this. So it seems like vaccination is a winning issue for Biden at this point. And in fact, his popularity is suffering because of how poorly the pandemic response is going right now, driven in large part by conservatives who've encouraged people not to get vaccinated. Wow. Well, that one continues to rage on. Ida, the hurricane has cleared, but the cleanup continues. Tell us where you're at with that. Yeah, you know, I missed talking to you uh, last Friday because I was up in Philadelphia, where, of course, they were dealing with an awful mess of flooding there. Um, The cleanup is continuing across the U.S. It's Louisiana that's really hardest hit right now. And there are parts of that state that may not receive electricity again until the end of the month. The lights are coming back on in New Orleans, but it's the rural areas that are really hard hit. And, of course, uh, they were pummeled last year during the last hurricane season in that same area on the Gulf Coast. Gulf Coast, excuse me. And it's at the point now where some people are starting to wonder, is it even worth rebuilding at this point or is it time to relocate? Very interesting times. A lot of ground to cover. A lot happening. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Jackson. We appreciate it. Have a great weekend. You too. That is Jackson Proskow, a Washington Bureau Chief for Global News. And, uh, you know, just to kind of piggyback after our conversation and off of our conversation with Jackson, where were you in 9-11? What do you remember? What was your greatest takeaway 20 years ago tomorrow? We've got a text in that says, I was a school bus driver in a rural area when 9-11 happened. I remember that at each stop, the kids would get on, mm. and that was my way of getting updates. Wow. Um, you know, and it was. people. Somebody would tell you something, and if you weren't near a television or a radio um, to, to find out in computers, I mean, we had our computers, but mm-hmm. it wasn't like online updates 20 years ago. Um, you would hear from somebody and say, are you sh- are you sure? Yeah, yeah. Did that really? Really? And what channel should I watch it on? Somebody said that earlier this morning. Uh, every single channel. Oh, my channel. gosh. It was everywhere. Everywhere. Last night wrapped up the debates ahead of our September 20th federal election and the leaders came out swinging for the most part. With more on the key moments for each, we're joined this morning by Mike LeCouture, Global National Ottawa correspondent. Good morning, Mike. 
Good morning, guys. How are you? Excellent. Thanks for joining us once again. Couple of debates back to back. Yesterday, you talked about some how some of the leaders really didn't get too too involved because French clearly wasn't their first language. So it seemed that changed last night, didn't it? Talk about making up for lost time. <laughs> I mean, Anami Paul, Jugmeet Singh, mm. and Aaron O'Toole. Um, you know, I'm not going to take credit for this. The Toronto Star dubbed it a mosh pit of a debate because they were just right in there. Uh, the, you know, the Green Party leader, Anime Paul, coming out swinging. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with Jugmeet Singh of the NDP and Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole. Now, you know, because of language, one would have to say that Yves-François Blanchet was at a disadvantage uh, in this one. English is not his first language. He struggled a couple of times with trying to find different phrases and different uh, terms. Uh, and then he complained that he wasn't getting equal time to the others. But that's also probably because he just didn't interject as much. Again, not as comfortable in English. Um, but yeah, you could definitely see the difference when you consider um, how much and how important it was. Clearly, Annemie Paul realizing that this is going to be her best option and her best um, a, a chance to go in there and speak to Canadians directly. You know, and, and Mike, even the, the format, to a certain extent, criticized by some of the participants and observers. I, I guess if, if you have five participants, is, is there a better way? Yeah, and that's the big question, I think, going forward for the commission that sort of leads these debates. Um, and, and that's the thing. So, in, in again, I'll compare it to the French debate. You definitely had... Um, a, more restraint, I would say, but that was due in part to that three of these leaders didn't feel like they could just, you know, throw themselves into the mud or into the mosh pit, um, you know, too quickly because they weren't as comfortable. So you get five leaders now trying to get FaceTime on stage. I'm not trying to, I'm not going to criticize Shachi Curl. She did a great job for what she was handed, um, in terms of trying to keep all the leaders on time, on policy, and making sure that they answered questions as well, because that is a difficult thing in all of this, making sure that they're not just on their message track. Um, the difficulty is that once you sort of allowed for some of this open debate, and there was tons of crosstalk, and I don't even know if mm-hmm. people were able to sort of, you know, sift through it and be able to hear it, but it left leaders feeling rushed uh, at the end of, uh, you know, a bit of a crosstalk. And then the moderator would say, okay, now you get to close this up, but here's five seconds. And, you know, I'm not going to tell people how long five seconds are in radio and TV. We know it very well. Five seconds is not a lot of time to communicate what you're trying to communicate to an audience. So Justin Trudeau, the liberal leader, definitely seemed rushed and and, and thrown off by it as well, because he uh, is more used to sort of taking his time to communicate a point. And because he was so much on the defensive, it became it all the more difficult for him to try and adjust to that. You know, and we talk often about knockout punches in the debate. So did you see anybody or find that anyone sort of landed the most punches or took the most? Yeah, it's it's difficult because, you know, everybody sort of thinks back to the Brian Mulroney, John Turner knockout punch. Uh, and, you know, we haven't really seen one since, except for maybe the Leighton on Michael, Jack Leighton on Michael Ignatieff, uh, where he said that if you want a promotion, you actually have to show up to work. Uh, you know, that was probably the last one that, that we could really say. But... Yeah, so Anime Paul did land a number of punches, uh, you know, early on saying that she doesn't think that Justin Trudeau is a real feminist. And then she gave shout outs to Jody Wilson-Raybould, Jane Philpott, and Selena Cesar Chavanez, who were three ex-members of the Liberal Caucus uh, that were booted from caucus. And, you know, Trudeau turned that around on her and said, 
I'm not going to be taking any lessons in caucus management from you, Ms. Paul, referring directly to uh, Jenica Atwin, who was was the Green Party uh, MP who crossed the floor to the to the Liberals. And then Singh also tried to go after uh, uh, Trudeau. Uh, you know, Trudeau and Singh were, were basically sparring over um, uh, over environmental plans. Um, and uh, and Trudeau basically said, "Look, the the experts that give our plan an A." give your environmental plan an F and Singh fired back saying, well, over the last six years, I'd give, I'd give you an F um, for your, uh, you know, for what you've been doing and mm-hmm. your track record. Uh, it, you know, and I got to say, it kind of left Aaron O'Toole, the leader of the Conservatives, in, in a decent spot because he let a lot of these fights happen and then picked and chose his moments to get in there and take a shot and say what he needed to say. Um, so if we're talking winners and losers, yeah. um, you know, Trudeau was the target. Uh, but that's what happens when you're the incumbent and coming in yeah. uh, with, with a six-year track record. And, you know, O'Toole attacking um, Trudeau, saying he makes a lot of promises, doesn't deliver. And then Trudeau returns in kind, saying, uh, you know, O'Toole, O'Toole's plan lacks ambition, especially on the climate targets, on uh, greenhouse gas emission targets, and saying that Singh's plan uh, lacks accountability. Yeah. So, you know, uh, you want to talk about winners and losers? Uh, you know, in a sense, I hope the, the voters were the winners in yeah. this because I, I hope that they got the information that they wanted. Unfortunately, I'm worried that they were the losers because they were the ones yeah. that may have had to sit through that. It could be the case. A lot of due diligence on the voters' parts over the next 10 days. And for you, eat your Wheaties and try to get some rest <laughs> this weekend because we are 10 days away, Mike. Thank you so much. Ooh. Wheaties or coffee? Because I've been going with coffee, so I don't know if I'm... Am I doing it wrong? Is that Maybe it? mix the Wheaties with the coffee. I don't know. Uh, you know what? I'll try that tomorrow morning. Give it a shot. Thank you so much, Mike. Appreciate your time. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Mike LeCouture, Global National Ottawa Correspondent. Right now, time for helicopter traffic brought to you by Truman. Building Calgary's best featuring the Arcola of Spring Willow, luxury southwest townhomes from the mid-500s. Visit trumanhomes.com slash Arcola. Live better, live Truman. Big slowdowns through the southeast part of the city. There's a collision westbound Glenmore Trail at the exit ramp to Blackfoot Trail. Traffic's down to a single left lane with backups now stretching towards 24th Street, Ogden Road. You're looking at at least 20 minutes to get through with big delays on southbound Deerfoot as well, stretching back towards Pagan Trail. You're also going to see big delays if you're leaving the Deerfoot Meadows area or exiting northbound Deerfoot to get onto westbound Glenmore Trail. Also traveling up in the northwest, still trying to get eyes on a collision southbound Crowchild Trail at Sars. Sea Trail, still seeing a bit of a slowdown, just a couple of extra minutes to get through. Get 20 times the points now until Sunday at Shoppers Drug Mart when you load your offers with a PC Optimum app. Restrictions apply. See digital coupon for details. For the 770 CHQR Traffic Helicopter, I'm Brady Howard. Well, a recent study from the Fraser Institute found that young Canadians will bear the burden of Canada's rising debt level. And joining us to break down the findings is Jake Fuss, Senior Economist with the Fraser Institute. Good morning, Jake. Good morning. Thanks very much for having me on. Thanks so much for being here with us. I mean, obviously, our debt is massive right now in Canada and won't be paid anytime soon. So uh, what does that mean? What, what were your findings in terms of how young Canadians are, are going to bear the brunt of the, the debt and the deficit? Yeah, well, the pandemic has resulted in Canada racking up significant debt. Um, but, you know, little attention has been paid to this issue during the election campaign thus far. Um, but we know there's consequences associated with debt accumulation. And today's deficits can be thought of as tomorrow's taxes. So what our study shows is that young Canadians in particular um, will shoulder the, the largest burden moving forward 
and Canadians aged 16 to 35 will pay roughly $20,000 per person in additional taxes over their lifetimes uh, due to current and future borrowing in Ottawa. Incredible when you put a, a dollar figure on that. Jake, let's go back to the old uh, University Economics 101 class and talk about, you know, the big, the four-letter word known as debt is one thing, but deficit and, and how that works and, and how people should be able to wrap their minds around the deficit that we're facing. Well, exactly. Actually, this year, um, we're looking at about $150 billion in terms of the deficit. So that's just for a single fiscal year of what we'll be running. Um, the total debt, which is basically the accumulation of deficits that you run over time, um, is well over a trillion dollars. Now, obviously, these are big numbers. Um, and that's part of the reason why we wanted to put, um, you know, some context around that on a per person basis. Um, so showing, you know, how much Canadians will actually be responsible for, for paying in terms of taxes due to debt accumulation over the long term. Um, so we see, you know, based on the age group that you're in, um, it's going to vary quite significantly. Um, like I said, it's about $20,000 per person if you're 16 to 35. Um, and then the average Canadian overall will pay about $10,500 um, for older Canadians as well. Well, Jake, I mean, the growth of the federal debt obviously is concerning and should be for all of us uh, and a special concern for young people. They're going to bear the brunt of it. We know that. But I mean, you know, it's the number is so staggering and it's almost incomprehensible where it's gotten to now through the pandemic. I mean, what do we even what are they can a government even get that under control? Yeah, you know, I think there's we certainly have to have this conversation. Um, you know, I think, you know, some federal politicians of all um, political stripes have, have decided, you know, it's easier to spend today and defer the cost of that spending to future generations by borrowing. Um, but, you know, I think it really comes down to having discussions right now um, because, you know, we can get to situations down the road like the mid-1990s um, where, where we get into situations where interest costs um, consume a significant amount of your revenues um, and these can, things can kind of spiral out of control before you know it. Um, so it's really important to have these discussions discussions, um, you know, before the debt, you know, you get into sort of near debt crisis like we saw in the 1990s um, and really have these discussions now, um, you know, in our households now about what we want to do moving forward, um, especially in the long term, um, because debt and interest costs in particular can become uh, quite a big concern before you know it. Uh, you know, Jake, when you look at uh, the past 18, 19 months, obviously not a Canadian-specific issue. So this is happening around the world as far as the spending is concerned, you know, that had to happen due to the pandemic. I'm wondering, can we look at other nations? Are, are there any on your radar that are doing things correctly to try to mitigate the, the costs moving ahead? Yeah, well, I think, you know, that's like you mentioned, you know, right now nations around the world are kind of facing these problems. Um, so we're kind of seeing, you know, this isn't just a unique problem in Canada as well. Um, this is happening, you know, in all G7 countries, for example. Um, however, what we're actually seeing, though, is that Canada has acquired more debt than most other comparable countries. Um, so the, the kind of scale of the problem is, is perhaps a little bit bigger in Canada. Um, so it's difficult to point to uh, one specific country that's probably handling this better than others. Um, but I, I would say, you know, that Canada's um, debt accumulation has been quite significant and kind of stands out in the pack. Um, so this will be certainly an issue for, for Canada to manage in the, long in the long term. Well, Jake, the debt's not going away and uh, the conversation shouldn't either. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks very much for having me on. Appreciate it. That's Jack Fuss, who is a senior economist at the Fraser Institute.
Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.